Well, if you could allow me, let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled at the reality that we have the privilege to sing such beautiful songs that we have already sung. We do not deserve Christ. We deserve eternal wrath, eternal damnation. We deserve hell. When we take an honest evaluation of our own selves, we find nothing but our sin in light of our holy God. And so we thank you for Christ. We cherish Christ because of what he's done on our behalf. Apart from your grace and mercy, we would be lost like many in this world. But yet you have opened our eyes to the gospel. You have called us to hide in the shadow of the cross. And these will be things that we will spend eternity praising God and thanking God for. Lord, as we think about our redemption this morning, grant unto us perseverance. Open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things in your word. Grant unto us what we need. Perhaps there are some in this room that need encouragement. Lord, grant that encouragement. Lord, perhaps there are some in this room that need correction. And through your word, bring about that correction. Perhaps there are some in this room that need to hear of the gospel and need new life from Christ. Lord, give that new life, not because of any individual or any church, but because of the gospel itself. Lord, we pray in this next few moments that the word would do its work. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. On March 20... 2018 of this year, the last male northern white rhinoceros passed away. That might sound, that may not interest you at all. Here in Southern California, we don't have many of those. And even if you go to the zoo, you probably won't see one because the last male has passed away. This animal now only has two surviving females left. And so this animal is endangered. It's literally on the brink of extinction. This rhino, whose name was Sudan, was overseen by a team of scientists, a team of um, businessmen or people investing money and wanting to see this animal preserved. And it was even uh, surrounded by a team of armed guards. See, the rhinoceros is hunted for its tusk and uh, what those things can bring in terms of jewelry and other valuable things. And It was so valuable that armed guards had to guard it while it would eat in the wilderness because of fear that hunters would catch it and sell whatever they can gather from this animal. Think about how much time, think about how much money, think about how much energy goes into preserving this animal. You know, in the world that we live in today, there are some scientific ways that they believe they can continue the this particular species of the northern white rhinoceros. But still, at the end of the day, we're talking about an animal and we're talking about millions of dollars and lots of energy spent in preserving this life, this species. I think and I fear that in a spiritual parallel, 
There are ways in which we as Christians think that Bible-believing Christians here in this particular part of the world, Western society, are under a similar threat. There aren't many of us left that love this book, that read this book, that believe this book, that obey this book. And so there are times where we might feel like we are an endangered species. And there are times where we might feel that we need to pour in all of our energy, all of our resources, all of the protection that we might need into preserving biblical Christianity. I think about the things that are happening in this world and in this country. And as a Christian, I can feel like I'm standing at the the bottom of a mountain, tasked to climb to its top. Think about the rise of pluralism. The things that we see happening in our culture, right? Bakers can't bake. Baker's going to bake. Whatever it is. I don't even know the details of the controversy. Right? There's concerns over our freedom of speech. What we can and can't say in the the public square. Because we don't want to hurt people's feelings or their quote-unquote rights. Think about society's denial of propositional truth. Just... People not even accepting the the basic idea that there are things in this world that we can say are true with a capital T. I think about what's happening in churches and they're scrambling around to try and be relevant because they feel as though they're going to lose the culture. There are so many things battling against biblical Christianity that it can seem like a daunting task to be a Christian in the world that we live in today. Do you feel like that? I feel like that. I was uh, attending a, a men's breakfast one time, and, and an older gentleman said, you know, I'm excited that the world is, at least here in the West, becoming a little bit more anti-Christian, because from his perspective, he was saying, well, now we get to see who the real Christians are. Amen. He's an older gentleman in his 90s, and I sat there thinking, easy for you, because you're not going to be here. This is the world that we live in. And when I cower or when I am tempted to shrink back at this uphill battle of what it means to be a Christian in today's world, I do find comfort when I read the scriptures. I, read, I find a lot of comfort when I read passages like Matthew, when we're told that the gates of Hades will not prevail. I find comfort in passages, in, like in Matthew again, at the end when Jesus says, I will be with you until the end. I find comfort in, in these passages that, that promise the preservation and the continuity of the spread of the gospel here on this earth until Christ's return. And those things warm up my heart, but then I start to think about the details of those promises. How does God preserve the church? How does God continue the spread of the gospel? It often is accompanied by the sufferings of God's people. Amen. The boldness to live a Christian life in the face of an unchristian world. We love the doctrine of preservation. We love the the Bible's promises of preservation. But we need to realize that in God's preservation of our souls, that actually implies we will see difficulty. We will see hardship and we will 
see trials. We as Christians are faced with pressures, as we've already seen, externally outside of the church, but we also have pressures internally. There are pressures within the people here. Pressures perhaps not necessarily intentionally inflicted. Pressures to compromise doctrine, perhaps. Pressures to compromise integrity or to overlook certain sins. We know that there are pressures for us to fall in terms of being faithful in this world. And so today, knowing that there are external pressures, knowing that there are internal pressures, what I'd like for us to do is look to a book in the Bible that kind of understands what we might be experiencing, maybe even to a more serious degree. And that's the book of Hebrews. You know, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish converts. And these Jewish converts faced a lot of pressure, both in the world, Roman persecution or perhaps other persecutions, and internally from their own kinsmen, unconverted Jews who were among the, the leaders of those who persecuted the church early on in her history. And so the recipients of the book of Hebrews were no strangers to the difficulty of living a faithful life under a culture that did not want the beliefs of Christianity. And the Bible is, or the book of Hebrews is a book written to encourage these individuals. You know, one of the ways that he encourages them, if you would allow me to at least survey some verses as we get to chapter 4, is by continually reminding them of Christ's return. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world. The fact that he uses the phrase again implies that there was a first time. There was a first time when Christ came into the world and then he is again going to be coming. And so he spends a good chunk of chapter 1 reminding his readers that Christ is coming again. That's one of the ways that we find encouragement when we look at the uphill battle of living the Christian life here on this fallen earth. In chapter 2, verse 5, notice what he says. He says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come. When he uses this phrase, world to come, he's talking about the, 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 the heavens or the final stages or however you want to view your eschatology. But he says, The world to come concerning which we are speaking. So not only does he remind them of Jesus is coming back, but he reminds them of what life will be like when he does come back. I just, you know, I, I turned the corner a couple of years ago from my 20s to my 30s. And I quickly realized that I'm not 20 anymore. I've actually been texting with PJ about um, possibly joining a basketball league. And both me and him are, he's older than me, so I'm not as worried maybe as he is. Uh, but we are both concerned. You know, I played in this league last year, and these guys are in their 20s. And I'm playing basketball, and I can't, you know, these guys are in their 20s. We're playing late at night, and then they wake up and go to work the next day. And then I wake up the next day, and my body hurts all the way up until Sunday morning. 
I love to be reminded of the fact that a day is coming when I will have a glorified body and I will walk with Christ. And I will talk with Christ and I will know Christ and I will look at Him face to face and He will remind me of the price it paid for me to get to heaven. And that's what He's talking about in chapter 1. He says, He's coming again in chapter 2. Remember, there's a new world that's coming. And you will be part of that new world. And how that happens is through Jesus Christ. Because in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Remember Jesus. He uses our Lord's earthly name Yahweh saves a promise that stems all the way back into the Old Testament it was relevant during the first century when the author is writing this and is relevant for today Jesus saves and you need to consider him and one of the most pressing times where you need to make sure that you are considering Christ is in the midst of trial in the midst of difficulty in the midst of hardship and so he's reminding us of Christ all the way to the point where we get to our text this morning. That was all introduction. You guys have a couple more hours, right? <laughs> I, I think I heard PJ preaches over an hour, right? So I can get comfortable here? No? All right. Uh, have you heard that Amen Pharaoh thing before? Like if, if a preacher is, is preaching for too long and you want to give an amen, just say Amen Pharaoh. And then when he asks why, just say, because you got to let my people go. Okay? <laughs> So if I hear an amen, Pharaoh, we'll start wrapping things up around here, okay? (laughs) Hebrews chapter 4. Going back into this text, we, we, we get to this point where he's still encouraging his readers to be faithful in the midst of difficulty, to be faithful in the midst of persecution. In chapter 4, verse 14, he expresses the main point of these three verses at the very end of the verse. Notice what he says at the end of the verse. He says, let us hold fast our confession. He's encouraging them. The author includes himself. He says, let us. This is a Christian activity. This is a believer's activity to hold fast to the confession. Some would be persecuted to death. When you read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, it says that some are persecuted to the point of the shedding of blood. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, he tells them, remember your leaders. Well, why does he tell them to remember their their leaders? Because they probably passed on. They were probably martyred for their faith. And so these are leaders that are to be remembered. And so they need to be encouraged to hold on to the faith because there are some legitimate, serious threats. And so he says, hold on to this confession. When we think of confession, this is something that was common. This is something that we can all agree upon. When we think of the term confession, this is something that is an internal recognition. You just don't confess with your mouth, but you got to confess in your heart. Christianity has a certain body of beliefs that all of Christ's followers must subscribe to. And so when he uses this phrase, confession, he's calling out his readers, he's calling out his listeners to hang on to the doctrines of Christianity that are believed in the heart and confessed with the mouth. 
We cannot create a dichotomy or a separation between what we believe and what we do. Christianity is an all-encompassing, life-changing belief. And so to compromise in any one particular area of your Christianity might lead to a compromise in your eternal state. So the author here is saying, the whole point of what I'm trying to say in verses 4 through 16 is that we need to, as Christians, make sure that we are holding fast to this confession, to our beliefs in heart, in speech and in action. This passage will provide for us three motivations. Three motivations that cause us to cling closer to Christ. Three motivations that cause us to love Christ more, to cherish Christ more, and invigorate us to follow Christ even harder. And notice, these motivations or these solutions, is not to rid us of trial and temptation. These motivations give us the strength to go through and persevere in trial and temptation. These three Christian motivations are simply holding fast to Christ's exaltation. Secondly, holding fast to Christ's association. And thirdly, holding fast to Christ's invitation. So, Three shuns, if you want to look at it that way. First, let's take a look at Christ's exaltation. This is a motivation for us to hold fast to the confession because in verse 14, he begins with this very truth. He says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. I love this language that the author uses. He uses language of possession. You know, my wife and I just celebrated seven years of marriage and When I go around, nobody calls her honey or love or mine except me. She belongs to me. If I hear somebody else say that, we got problems. This is language of possession. This is language of understanding or intimacy. And here, the author of Hebrews says, you need to understand that you have something within your possession that is more valuable than anything in this world. So oftentimes we lose sight of our possession in Christ or what we have in Christ. Not necessarily just, we lose sight because of our material possessions sometimes. Sometimes we lose sight of because of our misplaced priorities. But here the author is reminding us to zero in on what we actually have. We spend so much time complaining about what we want or what we don't have. We spend so much time complaining about the things that we have and how they don't live up to our expectations. But the author here is saying, forget all of that. Forget what you want. Forget what you have in terms of whether or not it's sufficient in your eyes or not. But there is something within your possession that will help you faithfully live out the Christian faith. And praise God, because notice, what is it that we have? A high priest. We have a great high priest. We have someone who intercedes on our behalf even when we are faithless. He is faithful. We have an advocate. We have someone, as he describes in Hebrews chapter 1, who is seated at the right hand of God. 
He is our mediator. He pleads on our behalf before the throne of God. This is what you have in your possession. So as you try and live the the Christian life faithfully in this fallen earth, you will stumble, you will fall, you will make mistakes. But go back to the high priest. Find your reconciliation to God the Father through Him. And I love that we have a high priest who is not just within our possession, but He is exalted because it says here that He has passed through the heavens. Passed. Not passing. Oh, you know, we're just passing by. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not taking a cosmic stroll through the galaxy saying, look at this star that I created. Look at this galaxy that I created. No, it says that he passed. He exceeded. He went beyond that and he traveled further than what the eye can see. Right? He passed through the heaven. No, he passed through the heavens, plural. This is a wonderful gift to embrace that the Messiah, the God that we follow, has already shown us the pathway to heaven because he's there right now. He passed through the heavens. You know, in, in, whenever Easter time comes around, what are we celebrating? We celebrate The resurrection. And what do a lot of non-believers say? Well, where is he then? Where is he? You say that you give your life to this man who conquered the grave. You say that he's risen from the grave. Then where is he? Well, they need to read chapter 4, verse 14. I'll tell you where he is. He is in worlds unknown. Sitting in the very presence of God. And one day, I will be there with him. Why? Because I am his and... He is mine on the basis of my faith and repentance in Him. We need to hold fast to Christ's exaltation. You know, one of the things about living in L.A. that's just something we all kind of grown used to is traffic. It's traffic. You know, I visited a friend in Sacramento And we're driving in Sacramento, and then all of a sudden, we're on the freeway. It slows down, and we start rolling at about 60, 55, 60 degrees. And then he breathes a sigh, oh, traffic. And I'm like sitting there thinking, dude, we're still moving. This is not traffic. Have you sat on the 405 during rush hour? Have you driven down the 105? Have you driven down the 91? This is not traffic. And you know what? Why do we go through that? If there are other places in this world where we don't have to deal... Now, my sanctification is coming out right now. But there are other places in the world where they don't have to deal with this. Why do we deal with it? Why do you get in your car after an eight-hour day, check your Maps app or whatever you use, Waze or Google, and then think to yourself, man, I got an hour before I get What makes all of that worth it? Well, whatever is waiting on the other side of your eight-hour day, your family, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your church might be waiting on the other side of that 45-minute commute. Listen, on a small scale, we are willing to go through a little bit of difficulty for the payout of what we would see on the other side. 
That's exactly what the author is doing here when he gives us a glimpse of Jesus seated, seated, seating, sitting, seated at the right hand of God the Father. He says, you're going through some trial and difficulty right now. But what's on the other side of that is your great high priest who's interceding for you in the very presence of God. I'll be there. My hope and prayer is that you would too. That you would trust and embrace the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So that you could join with the rest of us. Have you become spiritually short-sighted by earthly distractions? Well, remember. Remember where Christ is. Remember where he's leading you. Secondly, notice, we can find motivation in Christ's association if you're tracking with the text in verse 14, we have in our possession something that's not even in this realm of existence, right? That's what verse 14 says. You have a great high priest who's in heaven. Now, if you're tracking along, you might be asking a very you know, legitimate question. How can we have something that's not even here? How can we have in our possession someone a high priest who's not even in our realm of existence. And that is answered in verse 15. The author anticipates that objection because notice he begins with this really confusing double negative. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Uh, you know, speaking in double negatives is really hard. I saw a TV show, uh, it was a prank show where they had to, this guy had to hold up a sign and try and convince people to join him in this protest. And the sign said, don't stop letting people help, letting people not help you. And it just didn't make sense because there were too many double negatives. And here, when we take a look at this, what is the author actually saying? What he's actually saying is, no, you do have a high priest who can sympathize with you. Just because he's up in the heavens, just because he's not in this realm of existence, doesn't mean that he doesn't understand what you're going through here on this earth because he was here. He sympathizes. Literally here, this term sympathy is that he feels with us. He feels with us. You ever go through a, a difficult time in life? And we, do, we use this language all the time in how we speak to one another. It's like, hey, you know what? I feel you, bro. Right? Hard time. Man, work is hard. Man, school is hard. Man, life is hard. Raising kids is hard. Man, um, being an adult, hashtag adulting, whatever they call it nowadays, it, this, is being, it, this is hard. And, and sometimes when, when you share those kinds of burdens that are on you, you're not necessarily looking for answers. You're just looking for someone to say, man, I understand. I feel you, bro. I'm right there with you. And that's exactly what this text is saying when it says Jesus sympathizes with us. If Jesus Christ were physically standing here, he would say, I feel you. No, what, no matter the objection, no matter what experience, you might look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you did not have to live in this 21st century world. You did not struggle with this little thing called a phone. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, perhaps even more serious matters of purity. You didn't have to deal with the society that we live in, all these surgeries that people are having, showing how backwards thinking that they might actually be. 
And Jesus could actually stand here and say, you know what, I did not live in this 21st century world, but I've been tempted with distraction. Much like how you're tempted with distraction when you wake up in the morning and look at your phone. I've been tempted with lust. Much like you're tempted with lust when you're on your computer or out at the beach in the summertime. Jesus Christ, and here's a more serious one. I don't want to get in trouble, but even sometimes uh, the, for the women, you know, you don't understand what it's like to go through certain things to the men, right? You never had a baby. You never experienced other biological differences. Um, even that claim before Jesus will not stand because you know what? Jesus can say, well, I may not have experienced that, but I've been tempted with things like being irritable. I've been tempted with things of, like frustration. He was surrounded by 12 disciples that had no clue what was going on. And so even whatever human objections we think we can come up with, oh, you know what? Jesus, you didn't have parents like mine. You had Mary. She was a godly woman. I remember being a kid thinking to my parents, I never chose you to be my parents. Then my parents said, hey, right back at you. We didn't choose you either. Right? No matter what, we, we can't say, Jesus, you don't know what it's like. You don't have my parents. You didn't have my siblings. You didn't have the technology or the world that we live in. No, Jesus came to this earth. And while he may not have an exact understanding of what it's like to own an iPhone, he has, an, he has a, a very accurate understanding of the core temptation that's happening in your heart. Amen. And this is why in the book of John, we're told that all judgment has been given to the Son. Because there would be some sense the right for us to stand before a holy God and say, well, you don't know what it's like to live on this earth, but because judgment has been given to the Son, He stands there and says, uh-uh-uh. No, I, I understand. Amen. And I've gone beyond you into perfect obedience. Amen. And so we need to take a look at this passage, and as Christians, we need to realize that Jesus Christ came into this earth, and he sympathizes with our difficulties. Yet there is a difference. Because he says, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus associates with us in the temptation, but he does not associate with us in the guilt of sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus is sinless. He is perfect. You know, we have a guy at church who, who lifts these crazy weights. 100, he's 140 pounds. He can bench 315. I might have mentioned him before. And when I work out with him, I work out with his wife. I can't, I, can't, I mean, it's just reality. I can't do what he does, Right? I can't even do half of what he does. So when I'm lifting the bar, or when I'm trying to lift the weight, who has experienced more of working out, me or him? He has. Even when I give up, more credit needs to be given to him because he felt the same pain that I feel, but he went beyond that because he's done more. That's exactly how the author is describing Jesus here. We all gave up. We all gave in. Jesus took the full brunt of sin without caving. Amen. 
And we need to find comfort in that. Because as He associates with us, as He partakes of life here, we find our comfort and our salvation in someone who has sympathized and understands what it's like and has succeeded on our behalf. You know, in the working world, one of the, the best experiences to have in the working world is to have a boss, a manager, or a superior who has done the very job that you're doing. Right? I remember I got hired right out of college to work for a company, and you know, right after my bachelor's degree, I was excited, I was working, and then I got hired, and then um, older people that I was tasked to be there with or work alongside of, there was just a lot, there was not much respect even though I had finished college. And that's just life, right? What, you know, we look at these inexperienced rookies and we look at them and think, well, you have nothing that you can contribute because everything you know is up in here. It's not really fleshed out in life. Well, Jesus comes down, experiences life here And he understands what we're going through. And so he sympathizes with us. Christ is the example of perseverance. He is the example of what it means to love God. He is the example for what it means to stay faithful in a faithless world. Strive to become like Christ in your love and devotion to God and his people. Verse 15 tells us we are motivated by his sympathy. Thirdly, we are motivated by Christ's invitation. As we look into this world and see the uphill battle of faithful Christian living, the author of Hebrews reaches an apex. He reaches a crescendo. He reaches a high point in his argument. And he is reminding us of Christ's invitation in verse 16. Because all of these things in verse 14 and 15 are true. Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God, because He is exalted, because He sympathizes with us, there is an implication that, ha- that has happened in our life, and it's expressed in verse 16. Therefore, let's approach Him. Let's draw near to Him. Let's not be shy or be weary of coming to Christ. And notice, what does He give us in this invitation? Approach Him with boldness, with confidence. Why? Because it's a throne of grace. The very way, you know, you think of a throne, you think of authority. When you think of a throne, you think of power. When you think of a throne, you think of the might of a nation. Right? Think of armies. You think of whoever is at the top of the pyramid. You think of a superior. You think of a hierarchy. And so a lot of the times when we think of authority, there is a natural temptation to be fearful. There is a natural temptation to be wary of like, oh man, you know what? This is a person of importance. This is a person of power. I need to be careful how I approach this. But notice the text describes this throne as a throne that is characterized by grace. So there's authority in Christ because he sits on a throne. There's authority in God because he is the sovereign ruler, but there is grace at his feet. That's the kind of power I want to be around. 
That's the kind of authority I want to submit myself to, an authority that is exalted, that is sympathetic, but at the same time is an authority that extends and dispenses grace. Christ invites us to experience grace. Notice the end of verse 16. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is where the energy for tomorrow comes. This is where the conscience is eased by the faults of yesterday. Because notice, he says, you receive mercy. Mercy is forgiveness. Things in the past that you've done or faltered, mistakes that you've made, sins that you've committed that need mercy to cover them. I need mercy. You need mercy? Not Elvis, have mercy. But legitimate forgiveness of sins for past faults. I don't, want to, I don't want to dig up the bones in my closet. I don't want you to see those. I don't want anybody to see those. But, but they're there. And God has mercy to forgive. And it's interesting because even the way that the author phrases this, you can almost even translate it or understand it in the past tense. You've received mer- or you have found Mercy, you have mercy and you have found grace. Grace is for tomorrow. Grace is what you need moving forward. And so I just don't need mercy for yesterday, but I need grace for today and grace for tomorrow. And he uses it and words it in language of assurance and guarantee. It's almost as if he's saying, you are pre-approved for an unlimited amount of grace. Grace, not to be abused, right? But you've been pre-approved to find grace at the throne of God. Amen. I've, you know, living in Southern California is so different from living anywhere else in the world. It is like, it is almost impossible to even own a home nowadays in Southern California. Like the... I mean, I don't know, I haven't maybe lived long enough to see the cycles of real estate, but when I look at numbers, and then when I look at my paycheck, like, there's things not anywhere close to touching. Right? I, I actually have to stand on the shoulders of other people's generosity, right, through rent or other means, just to make it in Southern California. And other people who may not have Uh, generous people in their lives to help them rent or find a good place to stay here in Southern California, they have to go through this super rigorous process of getting approved for a loan if you're going to buy a house. I have a good friend of mine, very good job, Filipino, no surprise, he's a registered nurse, he's an RN, right? And then his wife, Filipina, no surprise, registered nurse. My wife, registered nurse. My mom, registered nurse. My father-in-law, registered nurse. My mother-in-law, registered nurse. Right? Me? Oh, pastor? No, not really. But you know, this guy has got a really good job. And when he applied for a loan, it's crazy all of the rigors that they had. to. They were turning over every stone. You went to Target and you spent this much. You have credit here. You have credit here. You have all of these things in your life just to get approved to buy a home. 
the world is not a, a very gracious place. In the presence of God, where stakes are much higher, for the Christian, for the believer who can actually step into the presence of God because of their faith in Christ, you are pre-approved to receive invaluable grace. And that should motivate you to live the Christian life. Amen. We've got 30 more minutes, right? I didn't hear an amen, Pharaoh. <laughs> but as we wrap up our time, I can't but help think of a man named Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider was known to some as prisoner number 2491. He was actually a, a Bible-believing pastor during World War II. He lived in Germany. And upon preaching the gospel in Germany, the Nazi secret police were observing him prior to the Nazis taking over Germany, or at least, you know, going crazy over there. They were listening in on him, and they actually labeled him as psychologically deviant and put him in a concentration camp because of what he believed. And we today would just call him a gospel preacher. Well, they put him in a concentration camp, and he would eventually be the first Bible-believing martyr of the confessing church in Germany. They put him in a concentration camp, and as a man of God, as a preacher of the gospel, he actually starts a Bible study, and the other people in the concentration camp are converted, and they have this mini-church revival going on in the concentration camp. The Nazis see him as a problem, and so they isolate him and put him in solitary confinement so that he would no longer influence the rest of the prisoners. If you know anything about Nazi Germany, they conducted all of these experiments on their prisoners to kind of help with medical technology out in the world. They would actually see how close they could bring their prisoners to the brink of death and then try out all of these medical procedures to see if they could revive them, and they would take that technology and try and put it out on the battlefield. Actually, even to this day, some of the treatments that we have for burn victims comes from the research that Nazi Germany had or had accomplished when they were burning Jews. So these people treated their prisoners very, very badly. And so they were doing all of these medical treatments on him. They were doing all of these procedures on him. And he was killed when they gave him a dose of medicine that caused his heart to essentially explode. The Nazis were so embarrassed of how much they have beaten this guy black and blue and ruined his body that when they told his wife to come and pick up his body, they nailed the coffin shut because they didn't want her to see what he looked like at his death. Now what, would, what on earth... What on earth could cause an individual to sustain that kind of persecution? What on earth could cause someone to persevere through that kind of difficulty? Listen to what he said in one of his sermons prior or before he was brought into the concentration camp. This is what he said. But now you are challenged to confess and bear witness Dear church, we are anxious and we're afraid. He knew what was coming. Even before it happened, he goes on to say this. 
We do not see how the poor, unprotected, little boat of the church can be preserved among the powers and the forces of this world. He's scared. He knows that the world is against him. But here's what he says. But when, but then, we must remember this. In this boat, the Lord is with us. Amen. And soon, he will be up. Beloved, living a faithful Christian life here on this fallen earth is an uphill battle, or you might say, like Paul Schneider, that we are a tiny boat in the middle of the storm. But we have Christ in our possession. We have a sympathizer with our weaknesses. And we have an invitation to receive mercy and grace to live faithfully until he comes back. Amen. Beloved, be encouraged. Christ is everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this small reminder. In, in the scheme of life, Lord, we, this is one hour compared to the hundreds of hours that we live. This is but a few moments compared to all of the things we experience on a day-to-day basis. But yet, Lord, I, I pray and ask that this blessed hour of looking into your word would feed our souls would encourage us to be faithful Christians, would remind us of what we have in Christ. Lord, this this life is too short and too precious to give to anything else. And so, Lord, give us the perseverance that we need. Give us the big view of Christ that would cause us all the more to follow in His steps. Lord, we recognize our weakness And so we ask for your grace and mercy for this is and always is our time of need until you return. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for God's people. Encourage us this morning and we pray this in your name. Amen.